0: Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittum, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And I was so excited to have today's guest on the show. Oh my goodness, we have... Dr. Megan Roche, she is just an absolute, um, is par excellence in basically three areas of her life. So she is an elite runner. She is a doctor and she is running or co-running an elite level coaching business with her husband David, who was on this show several months back. And I was really excited to talk to Megan for a variety of reasons, but basically to touch on the three areas of her life that she's done so well in to talk about the intersection of her science background with her running philosophy and everything in between. I want to touch on Megan's intro, or I should say intro, her bio uh, during this intro, because it's so extensive that I didn't want to just do it in front of her during the show, but it really is truly remarkable. So let me just read from her webpage on... Her, her uh, coaching businesses website, which is some work, all play. Uh, we call it Swap in the episode. So here it is. Megan is the 2016 USATF Trail Runner of the Year at the Ultra and Sub-Ultra Distances. She's a five-time national champion, the North American mountain running champion, and a six-time member of Team USA. She graduated from Duke University with a degree in neuroscience and received her MD from Stanford Medical School at Duke. She played field hockey for the vast majority of her time there before running in her last year and basically converting from varsity field hockey to uh, varsity cross country in her last year at the school. Megan started coaching with swap 2016 and I'm oh, sorry, with the premise that she could help athletes turn to love the process of training and embracing their Inner ninja and recover using a taco Tuesday approach. Meg is a wonderful embodiment of basically taking, you know, the, the hard sciences involved with athletics at the highest level and marrying them and conjoining them to. Basically, the soft sciences or the social sciences in regards to positivity, um, creating a community effect within the runners and uh, not only with her connection to them, but um, kind of runner to runner within the swap group and just so many areas. Um, after you listen to this episode, if you haven't already done so, check out my episode with her husband, David, where we touch on some similar topics, but it's not a, uh, a you know basically a reproduction of this episode. Uh, it just kind of takes it into a couple of different angles. So. With all of that being said, here is my episode with Dr. Megan Roche. Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, my gosh. This is so awesome. Well, it was so fun to talk to you ahead of time, and now I'm even more pumped for the podcast.
0: There you go. See, the inner workings of the show. We do a little pre-show talking, um, just so everyone understands that whenever I screw up, I edit the show, so they do not have to feel nervous. But before we get into it, I do want to, um, basically, I've already done the intro of all of your athletic accolades, which are basically... Too numerous to list. So I just kind of like, you know, touched on the broad strokes of things, uh, basically showing that you are an elite athlete um, in every sense of the word. However, I wanted to give you the opportunity to explain, you know, what you're doing from a scientific and doctoral perspective, um, given all your current research and the other things that you're working on.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I I graduated from medical school two years ago um, and I didn't have enough of school. So I actually decided to go back. And right now I'm doing a PhD in epidemiology and epidemiology is a very long word, which essentially describes population health and looking at data across large populations. And I'm so fortunate that the population I get to work in is with athletes. And so I get to work with really motivated athletes, specifically the Stanford track and cross country team. So I look at bone stress and injuries from a genetic standpoint, um, from an endocrinology standpoint or from a hormonal standpoint. And um, I also am working for a company doing some consulting and looking at genetic predictors and athletes in general. So I'm staying really busy and loving the science end of all the work that I get to do.
0: And it's so interesting that this is the focus of your work in your studies, because one of the things that SWAP, I feel like is known for, you know, Shoot, it's known for so many things. But one of the things is how in tune that you and David are with your athletes and trying to make sure that they are equally in tune with their own bodies, how they're feeling, trying to get a great sense of basically the ins and outs of, you know, their own perceptions of how their body feels and their emotions. So what's it like for you balancing Kind of this, this, this scientific method that you're using, especially, you know, involving big data of sorts. And then also this mind body connection where in the other part of your life you're so ingrained with.
1: That's a fascinating question. So and, and an interesting one too, actually, because I tell athletes that I, I would prefer them actually to be less data oriented and less data driven when it comes to running. So I really encourage athletes just to get in touch with their intuition of how they're feeling and and really having that like holistic talk with themselves. And I like for all the data to be on the back end, either from the athlete's standpoint or my standpoint. So oftentimes when I give an athlete a workout, I have that, that data driven or that, that scientific standpoint behind what the workouts that they're doing doing, but I prefer to tell them like, this is how you should feel as opposed to presenting the science. And I like doing that because I think, I think science is such a strong thing and such a fun thing that we can learn from. But at the same, at the same time, it's like the intuition is so important and that's what really truly matters on race day. And that's, that's what truly matters when you really reflect on the sport in general.
0: So when one of your athletes is say doing, um, a workout session or something where, their effort is is increased, whether that's, you know, tempos or long runs or hills or whatever. Um, so you want them to basically to, be, to have, basically to record their efforts in a way that allows you as the coach to look into the data, but for them personally to be a little naive as to what that data is saying?
1: Exactly. And even actually, I will go as, as far as to say that if all of my athletes could train without GPS watches, prefer many of their workouts, I'd be a very happy coach. Just because I think sometimes that when you have when you introduce those GPS metrics, I think it puts a lot of pressure on athletes. I think it changes the the quality and the feel of the workout. And actually so my favorite dialogue with athletes just is, is just when they tell me simply how they are feeling, how that workout made them feel. And I give them metrics and I say, so for example, for a tempo run, if it's a 15 minute tempo, if it's a 15 minute tempo, I would say run that at our pace as opposed to giving them an exact prescribed pace. And I find it's a great dialogue between a coach and an athlete. And I think it really enables that, that athlete to have that intuition about how they're feeling.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting because obviously I feel like you get into a situation where the, say the less advanced runner or someone who maybe hasn't spent as much time in the sport or with a coach who you know prescribes those kinds of workouts, you must have some sort of onboarding mechanism or session where you have like, all right, what does that actually mean? Or would you use descriptor words instead of paces for um, how hard an effort should be, what's it like for you getting people up to speed on what that means? Or is it that not that big of a deal?
1: Yes, yeah. So athletes usually at first are a touch skeptical, I would say, especially if they're used to running with, you know, a GPS watch that bings at them every 30 seconds to tell them their heart rate is elevated or is reading them exact splits. And I think oftentimes athletes can be a little skeptical about that. And I will say that I do encourage athletes, it's, you know, if athletes truly love that process and it's something they feel strongly about, I do work with them as well. And I have some fun, some fun ways to do that. But, um, when I, I think athletes are usually skeptical at first, but then it's like they come to really appreciate the freedom of not being constrained to a pace, not totally feeling defined or f- having to judge themselves mid-workout. Mid and it's fun to see that transition happen. I would say it doesn't usually happen in the first workout. Usually it takes like a few workouts to get into that process of that of that intuitive running.
0: And do you feel like being able to disconnect from the data allows for people to be more mindful and holistic in terms of how they're viewing their own efforts, progress, and perceptions of what the training is doing for them.
1: I do. And what I tell athletes a lot too, is that the benefit of doing this is that data are messy. Like, you know, you can go out for a run and for whatever reason you could have a rough run. And there could be so many different reasons that feed into that. But that often is not a reflection of where your fitness is in general. Like what I tell athletes is that one bad run never defines you. Um, But actually on the flip side, one great run can define you. And so I, I tell athletes to embrace that. But I think like, I just I truly understand that the data can be so messy, and that as a result, it's important just to really think about how you feel, to think about the whole training cycle, and to put all of that into perspective.
0: Right, and you know, taking that zoomed out, long term approach um, for the vast mass for the vast majority of people. Sorry about that. You know, it really can be illustrative of what we can accomplish, and yet at the same time. Right? We are all, we can all be slaves to the moment, especially on some of those, you know, (laughs) days that we, that we deem as more important than others. So what have you done in your life as someone who has, you know, done very well in so many races over such a long period of time? What have you done on days where maybe you didn't perform the way that you had hoped, uh, no matter your placing, um, in terms of making sure that that wasn't a handicap for you, um, long term, or it wasn't something that you dwelled upon?
1: Yeah, so I would say, I, you know, I've had some strong races out there, but for every strong race, I have probably had at least one failure that goes along with that. And I think the beautiful thing about like coaching a lot of athletes is that I see that's a data, it's a data point for a lot of people. You know, you step up to a starting line enough, and you're going to have bad days, and that's the beauty of the sport. Like if we all had good days, it's like. Why would we be so excited about the amazing days that do happen? And so I think for me, like truly appreciating those failures as learning points, as opportunities to laugh at myself as a as a reflection of the the fact that I'm willing to take risks and put myself out there. I think when I view it that way, it becomes so much easier. And then it also it really makes you appreciate the good days,
0: yeah, that's for sure. And as someone who has you know this hardcore science background who's currently working in within reams of data and teasing out exactly what that means for people uh not only in the in the in the current state but also trying to be predictive with it what's it like for you having you know that that scientific method which is cur- you know always kind of like not far from your thinking but balancing that out or kind of squaring it with kind of the the power of positivity mantra that I feel like I get from Swap generally, and even the interviews I've heard with you and David, your husband, do uh, specifically.
1: Yeah, so positivity really feeds into everything that we do. And the great thing is, is it's infectious. So it's like, by the time we have this swap community, it's like when I log into the logs in the morning, and I'm drinking my morning coffee, it's like, I get caffeine and positivity, like all at once. And so it's amazing to have this like infectious culture of positivity. But I would say that alongside with that positivity, we really try to have like, open honesty and make sure that athletes like we want athletes to be able to feel what they're feeling and to really like truly reflect on it's like it's very similar to the running process like to have intuition about the emotions that they're feeling like we never want athletes to feel like there's forced positivity it's like you know we encourage that we cultivate that but we also really want athletes to feel how they're feeling and reflect on that holistically um, but feel like they're in a positive and motivating group that accepts them unconditionally for who they are
0: Right. And you kind of alluded to kind of the paradoxical nature of how, how this can work, right? Where like you have this idea of, you know, making sure that people are aware of their current reality, whether that's positive or negative. Let's just, let's just say, for instance, that something isn't going well with somebody. And so you have this, you know, you're not trying, to, you're not trying to have them lose sight of reality per se, but also being aware of like, all right, you know, you're great. You're wonderful. Everything can be just fine. We can get through this. So when you have this kind of paradoxical nature of like, all right, I want you to you know, be positive about what you can achieve, no matter your current circumstances, what's it like for you having maybe some of your more skeptical or I don't know, some of your athletes that maybe don't take to that right away? How do you try to inculcate some of your, your athletes into this semi-paradoxical state?
1: That's a fantastic question, and so I would say that it's really that underlying base of unconditional support. And I think with coaching, it's like you see that we all go through shitty situations. So had, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in this podcast. You can you, can you just it did out, it's all right. I just did. We can leave it. Um, but you know, for all of us, life sucks at some points. Like you know, I've been with athletes as as dogs have died, as partners have died, as as people have been diagnosed with um, you know really tragic illnesses, and um. You know, in the face of all of that, I think that just feeling that unconditional support is what allows athletes to excel and what allows athletes to embrace positivity um, in those moments to the best of their ability. Um, and so, so being positive is just about like, you know, laughing at oneself. It's about reflecting deeply. It's it's not necessarily like the surface level of thinking positive that many athletes think that it is. If that makes sense to you.
0: It really does. And that's one of the things that as I've gone back and reread your book, Happy Runner, which is fantastic, by the way, um, and, you know, li- and listened to you um, and read, you know, both you and David. That's one of the things where, like, I I feel like the, the more I engage with the things that you've put out into the world, it's this this long term and overarching happiness that can be divorced from what you're thinking and feeling in the moment as opposed to the other way around.
1: Exactly. I freaking love that. That's it. That's like a beautiful summary statement of the happy runner. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. And I think it's just what we really want for all our athletes is just an underlying base of self-love. I coach a number of athletes who struggle with mental health issues. And, and for many of those athletes, like being positive, waking up in the morning and being positive is not something that they're like able to do. Or it's not something that's like their natural state. But if you can embrace self-love and self-acceptance and just understanding that you're enough through all of that, I think eventually that, you know, that positive mindset can, can grow forward, but really that self-love is just at the root of it all.
0: Yeah. And I think one of those things that can get in the way of that, at least for me personally, and I'm sure I'm probably not the only one is this idea of like, you are your actions. Right. And that is something that while, it can be true in the short term. It isn't necessarily true, and hopefully isn't true. If you know you're making some poor decisions in your life, no matter what, no matter what it's regarding. As opposed to this more, and I and I pause to use this word, but I guess it probably rings true. This more like, um, you know, feeling of who you are in a spiritual sense, or like as a soulful individual, um, which is ne- not necessarily connected to your actions in a way, even though you want them to be as connected as possible.
1: That's beautiful. You're just dropping wisdom bombs over there. I love it. Well, what I what I tell the athletes is like, hey, we all mess up. You know, like I I have done things that I regret. I, I know David has done things that he like. You know, even Addie Dog has done things that she probably regrets, and she's like the most soulful creature I know. And it's like it really truly gets down to just really wanting to be a good person and under understanding that sometimes like your actions may be mistakes, or you know, you might mess up in that area. But like, if you truly want to be a good person, and you're truly trying to do the best for the world, that is something that you can arm yourself with. And that's something that can power that self-love.
0: And one of the things I've heard you guys talk about, and specifically you, I think you mentioned this on the Science of Ultra podcast. Um, it was that you you talked about how uh, physical adaptations from training are actually more likely to, to stick or have a greater impact if you have a positive mindset associated with, with your training, um, you know you have more faith in yourself, your coach, the system, and just a general happiness surrounding the efforts you have put in. And I'm just curious if you're, besides like the fact that this has been provable, I'm sure there's there's um, things that you've read that have shown this or bore this out. If you actually know the um, the connective tissue that that makes this happen, because it seems like, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's such a wonderful concept, but it's so hard potentially for me to even like connect the dots in a
1: way. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And it it, it does kind of feel like an amorphous concept concept when you break it all down. And there are great scientific studies out there highlighting the fact that like your brain state or even like your psychological state or your, your, how you're perceiving workouts really impacts how you recover from them, how you adapt them. And that's a beautiful thing. The interesting thing actually about swap is that we've got, and swap is the, the coaching group that David and I have um, is that we have all these amazing data points of athletes. And it's actually interesting. We can tell you early on who is going to be a great responder to training, just by how they respond to the log um, and, and how they're how their mindset is after workouts. Jason Slarb is a great example. Jason Slarb is this amazing guy who is just so bought into to training, and it's been evident um, across his across his racing, across his training, and it's just been and that was predictive early on, based on his early log interactions, and just based on the the general life mindset that he had.
0: That is fascinating because you would think that these are two very different things that literally are not connected in any way. Like how well someone, you know, for all intents and purposes is journaling compared to, you know, their 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 athletic performance. But it reminds me of a study and, and please bear with me here. I, I cannot remember... The test, whether it was the SAT or the MCAT or I think it might have been the MCAT, uh, which is would be funny considering the conversation we're having. But um, I
1: was gonna say, oh, my gosh, you're giving me nightmares at this point. I'm gonna have like stress dreams about that. that test.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it was is that they try to figure out what was correlative between, um, backgrounds and, um, in math scores on this standardized test. And the, the strongest correlation was how many people filled out the optional, um, biographical information before the test started
1: Interesting. that the people
0: who filled that out were more likely to do better. And like, I don't think it was a one-to-one ratio in terms of like, you know, from score correlation standpoint, but it was like the best predictor, like far exceeding, like, you know, Uh, grades coming into the test, socioeconomic background, parental information, basically any sort of segmentation you could do. The best correlation was who filled out the optional survey ahead of time, like literally like the 30 seconds before the test started.
1: That's so fascinating. And it's actually, this is funny, this directly parallels what David and I had a conversation about the other day related to swap and, and training logs is that athletes who fill out their training log each day and are very prompt in filling it out. We often see better race outcomes and better performance outcomes in them than people who are like, it's a Sunday and we're like trying to figure out what they did on a Tuesday or a Wednesday to go back in and, and um, plan their training. And by a, by a large majority, we have athletes who are very engaged every day in writing that. But those are the athletes who have the greatest success. And it's interesting because, you know, there's obviously so many different variables that go into that. Um, but it's just, it's interesting to see that mindset and it's interesting to see that play out both in the SATs and in the running world.
0: Right. And now because I'm trying to figure out like, all right, what are the what are the characteristics or motivations that would cause someone to go in one direction or the other? Right. Is it more like, all right, like I, I, I value David and Megan's time. So I want to do this or I'm fully invested or I'm spending money on this. So I want to get the most out of it. Or is it just like, you know, or or the or the other direction like, oh, is it a matter of not valuing it or is this or is would it be a deeper thing of like, I don't want to share this information because I know it's not going well, which would obviously be a strong predictor of a race not going well or things of that nature.
1: That's yeah, it's interesting. I think there's so many different variables you can measure that across. But I see one thing in general is that athletes who like immediately update after they run or just like they seem to have like a higher enthusiasm level for running or almost it's, it's like no matter what, when things go wrong or, you know, they, they expect that that happens, but they have like a higher resilience to that as well. So it's, it's interesting. I feel like there's so many different, different ways that we could analyze this and different data points that we could work off of.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. I bet you must get to the point with your athletes that are like, you could probably figure out between the time gap between workout done and updating the information, how well the workout went without even looking at the data once you've gotten to know that athlete pretty well.
1: That's brilliant. Yeah, some of my logs sync up with Strava. So I could actually like I could actually get a quantitative metric for that. So you're giving me great ideas.
0: All right. So let's talk about um, kind of embracing excellence in a variety of ways. And by excellence, I don't mean like you know, time specific or race metrics or things like that. Just basically people doing as well as they can in a particular endeavor that they're fully invested in. I want to bring this up to you because you're someone who's been able to do it in three different genres, all kind of, you know, kind of, you know, happening concurrently in a sense, you know, your athletic life, your coaching life, and now, you know, your professional scientific life um, as well. So when you think back and now I know that you're, you know, you, you and David are both very modest with this stuff. So I know I'm basically asking you to toot your own horn in a way. Um, so bear with me a little bit. But what do you think, you know, when you're doing this well, what are you doing to ensure that that happens versus when things are kind of going off the rails? What are some characteristics that are maybe leading to that?
1: Ooh, wow. That's a, that's a good one. Um, actually it's interesting. So the first thing that comes to my mind is unconditional love. And right now it's funny. I have so many things going on right now. I'm currently standing in a Marriott hotel in this, um, this boardroom that is like deconstructed and it looks like I'm in a murder scene. Um, so it's like my life is like all over the place right now. But the interesting thing is, is that David is just like my rock and my support. And I think his unconditional love makes it so that I have no fear and I'm able to take risks because to me, like... His love is just so important and that um that like relationship is more important than anything else I do, that it makes me able to go out and approach these things and, and not worry about it. And I think as a result of his love, which I think is what what started my ability to actually love myself, I think I was so hard on myself for so long that it took it really took someone who was able to love me so deeply for my for me to actually love my own self. And I think that to me has been an interesting process and something that I encourage of all my athletes. It's like, Hey, be your partner's greatest support system because it will make them have superpowers. And that's such an amazing thing.
0: Oh, how interesting. I did not expect you to go that route. And did you, you (laughs) I don't know if I expected
1: myself to go that route either.
0: (laughs) So was this an evolutionary process or was it kind of like a paradigm shifting moment where you felt the shackles come off and all of a sudden you're you know, able to embrace all that you are because of some sort of action or result that was unexpected or, or things like that.
1: I think it's probably a combination of a few things. So I think it happened very slowly. I'm the sort of person, like I'm always so hard on myself. Like if there's I'm the toughest critic on myself, um, out of anyone in the room. And I think I think it I think it really happens slowly over time. I think I think love is such a powerful force that you really can't even fight it. And I think for me now, also to the older I get, and I'm I'm still pretty young in the grand scheme of things, but I think the more times I have failures, and the more times I step up to that, and am able to laugh at myself as opposed to directly going to that self criticism, I realize how far I've come in that regard, um, and I also I also realize the role of my own self love and the role of David's love in that as well.
0: So, how would you characterize the positives and negatives of? You know, be someone being driven by fear of failure versus someone, you know, basically be driven by a love for fill in the blank. Because uh, I think there's probably positive and negatives to each on some level. Um, while we would probably all prefer the love side, you know, plenty of people have r- achieved results from the fear of failure as well.
1: Yeah, fearing failure is a powerful thing. Um, it can make you do some pretty impressive things just because I feel like it really adds that motivation level. But I would say what I see is that people who are afraid of failure often are not as consistent over time, because that's a much harder, like, you know, that emotion is so powerful can make you implode almost, um, where, like you know, you step up and say, you're, you're afraid of failure, and you do fail. It's like things can become so great that you don't want to step back into that arena again. Whereas I think if you come at it from a place of love, every time you fail, it's easy to get back up again, because that love is always there at the base.
0: Yeah. That's a great way of putting it, right? Like if you're having, if you're a fear of failure, what do, what do, you know, setbacks mean for you, which are, you know, 99.9% of the time, pretty inevitable.
1: Yeah. And it's like, and I think for a lot of people, and I think, I think it really too, it's like, once you start stacking those setbacks, I think it can become harder and harder and harder to step back in and put yourself out there just because, and especially, I think that implies too. It's like, as you grow, the failure has technically become bigger and bigger and bigger, and it, become, it can become harder to go through that process. Um, and so I think I think that's like, the more data points that you have to see that the more that you see that happen. And I, I appreciate you, you summarizing this for me. So I feel like right now you need like a very fancy Venn diagram to connect all the different points that I'm going to. So I, I really appreciate you uh, connecting this so well. Oh,
0: my no, th- hey, I'm just trying to get a handle on this for my own self. This is all selfish for me, I'm just trying to figure out what you're doing, so I can do it in my own life. That's for sure. And and when you're talking about, you know, I've heard you talk about embracing, not embracing failure, because that's definitely not the word you use. But basically, like embracing setbacks in a way um, where you you framed it more as like, hey, this should running should be about the stories you tell, not about the achievements you've you've had, which I want to talk to you about in a second uh, about your own achievements. Um, in a way you said like, Hey, that if you want to frame it that way, you know, basically the, the way of having interesting stories to tell is to do things that can be reckless or have setbacks. And, you know, like the perfectly linear line of success isn't inherently um an interesting story. So is this kind of like a proxy for you of basically saying, you know, ditch fear of failure? Or how did you get to the point where you had this, you know? embrace the story mantra as opposed to like, you know, achieve your goal mantra.
1: Yeah, so I think the good thing about failure is that the more you do it, the easier it gets. And I think that also too, the more that you reflect on failure, the more that you realize that it's a powerful life force as opposed to something that you should be afraid of. And I think in that reflection process, like having comedy and just laughing at yourself, like I think for me, I love I love comedy, I love humor. And I think that looking back on all my failures and, and being able to to laugh at them just really adds to my story. But I also think too, it's like, if life were just like this straight line path, it would be such a boring story. Like if you wrote that as a third grader, your third grade teacher would be like, add some excitement in there, you know, add some drama. Um, there's probably like some fancy narrative terms that I don't even remember from third grade, but it's like, you know, the, the elements of the story that make us human that are so powerful are those failures and are those moments that are hard and, and rebounding from them is really where like the meat of the story, it's where the most beautiful story lies.
0: Now, do you have any specific like I cannot believe this happened to me type moments where in the you know, in the in the moment you absolutely were not you know excited about sharing it, but now you look back upon it well like with mirth and joy?
1: Oh, I have so many of those um I can think of two so one being that I ruptured my high hamstring a couple months ago, I was running in Boulder and stepped into a prairie dog hole. And my high hamstring like literally exploded on the dot. And um, I watched my athletic career, I was told by a few surgeons, I wouldn't get back to running again. Um, and I was ultimately told by one I would. And so I went with him as a surgeon. But um, I think that moment for me was like, Oh, my gosh, it was like watching my story explode, watching a few months of rehab come up. And honestly, like it was so great for me because I embraced so many different other parts of life. Um, And also, I think I just grew a lot through that process. And so that's like, that's one big failure that's very relevant to me now. The other is that, man, I have always had this like massive fear of public speaking. And this year, for whatever reason, I've had like 25 different public speaking engagements. And it's been my goal to just step up and own who I am on stage. And it's amazing because that process has also translated to running where I feel like now I can get to a starting line and be like, hey, I got this. This is not This is not a public speaking engagement. And, and so I think um, the two of those combined have made for a really interesting year of just embracing failure and just going for it.
0: I'll tell you what, You know, after you've embraced this fear of public speaking, you could definitely be a podcast host because you segued me perfectly into what I wanted to talk about next, which is Coming back from injuries because over the last two years or so, maybe a little less, you've come back from two different injuries. Um, one that you're doing now and one that preceded what you did at the U.S. Uh, championship th- half marathon uh, trail race, which you did, you know, which you won and did so well. Um, let's just talk about coming back. And going through the injury process because you've had some experience with it now with two different injuries. And for you, what did you learn the first time through um, that you've been able to use this time around, considering not only did it happen during the peak of your career, but you also were able to rebound from it in a way that, you know, kind of portends the the, the positivity around, hey, you know, this isn't going to be a life altering setback.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I. During my, so I, I hurt my talus, which is like this, this bone in the foot. Um, before the, I breath. just
0: had an MRI in my talus.
1: Oh no. Is it okay?
0: It, it, it is fine. but It was funny when I heard you talk about it. So I was like, that's exactly what I'm heading to. I was, was listening to it, that episode that you did and you talked about it. I was listening to it on my way to the MRI for the same procedure. Which was like oh, oh my gosh,
1: I'm sure that was horrifying. <laughs> yeah, well, I've had two. Like, I'm so glad you're okay. By the way, the talus is is not a fun injury. It's a, a bone that has low blood flow in the foot, so I'm glad you're okay. Um, but I had the talus injury, and then I had a hamstring injury, both of which are rare and sometimes like career-ending injuries for athletes. And um, I think for me, it really forced me to step back and make sure that I have identities of myself outside of being a direct athlete. So I have identities as a coach, as a physician, as a researcher, and really embracing all of that and who I am, while still like holding tight to that running identity at the same time, like, you know, I I didn't want to like throw it away completely. And so I think for me, that injury process made me redefine my identity, but I also think it allowed me to have this opportunity to build back stronger. It's like whenever you have such a debilitating injury, or even a small injury, it's a great opportunity to do the rehab, to do the strength work, and to essentially like start over again. And that's like it's it's fun to start with a clean slate and to see what you can do.
0: Now, did you approach running differently when you came back from that um, from that talus injury?
1: I did. Well, I would say that every run I did, I was just so appreciative. It was like, even the really crappy runs, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm out here on a random Tuesday morning and I'm running. And this is awesome. Even though I feel like a hundred pound elephant. Um, And like, I, I think as a result, like that really helped redefine why I run. And I see, I see athletes go through that all the time. It's like, you know, when, when running is potentially taken away from you, you just have like this amazing gratitude on the return.
0: And how long did that last before you, you know, before you, you converted back to your default mode or were you able to maintain that?
1: I was actually able to maintain that. Um, I would say sometimes it becomes a little bit harder when like, you know, it's, it's two degrees out and you're going out for a workout. Sometimes that gratitude is, is you really have to dig deep to find it. But I think for the, the talus was, was pretty traumatic for me in the hamstring too, that I think like it's, I think it will last for a long time. Um, and I'll be curious to see if it lasts forever, but I I hope it will. I hope it will.
0: Now, one of the things that your group is known well for is this, this idea of these long-term goals, but you know, the idea of like these goals need to be, you know, big and you know, I think the big hairy audacious goal is the Jim Collins term that I used with David when I spoke with him several months back. And you know, it's, it's like that, that, that nice, again, there's so many the way that swap embraces paradoxes, I think it's really nice because it it really kind of um dovetails well with, with people's own um just connections with the world around them. Cause so many things can be paradoxical. So the idea of like, Hey, you're great the way you are, you know, we believe in you. We don't want you to focus too much on your results, but we also want you to have huge goals that are long-term in the future. So what's it like trying to simultaneously just, dist- kind of dissociate from, you know, what every run means and are, you know, trying to gauge and measure our progress while also holding fast to I can achieve so much. And these are the goals that I have set for myself
1: absolutely wow that's that's a great question so we encourage all athletes as you said to just dream big and I think it's interesting I would say that 99 of the athletes that I work with are capable of so much more than they even know I think like oftentimes we are our lim- our own limiter um you know we are our toughest critics our own limiter and I think that when you allow athletes to dream big like that it's just it's so exciting and also gets the wheels churning in a way that that self-belief then churns into consistency daily progress. So I think like we have that in like, you know, that's like the post-it note that you put on the fridge in the morning. But then beneath that are all of the other daily goals that are helpful to have for you there is like, Hey, today I'm going to appreciate who I am today. I'm going to get out the door to run. And those goals are just as meaningful as the long-term goals. And I think when you have that process of, like the side-by-side daily goals and big, scary dreams, I think it becomes a lot easier to go for the big, scary dreams. Because even if you don't get those, the story is going to be amazing. The day-by-day goals are going to be amazing. And that's all part of the process.
0: Yeah. I I think that's a really good way of putting it. And when you talk about how people are capable so much more than they they know – I just want to dig into that because what are some examples or what are some things that you've seen in terms of like, all right, people usually, again, to kind of again default to more of a metric driven response here, um, are people usually capable of 20% more than they think. Or, you know, I think that an able-bodied person of a certain age can 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 always get to X, Y, Z level, even if they don't think they can. Or like, how do you in your own mind view what people are capable of? And how does that um, compared to their own visions of themselves.
1: Wow. That, I mean, I think if we could find some way to quantify that, which would be, it would be very difficult. I think we could like, I think you could change the world with that. Um, But I think it really gets down to understanding and to really having these deep conversations with athletes about what they want and what drives them and what is meaningful to them. And then taking that conversation and helping them shape the goals. And for a lot of people, it's very different. Sometimes people just want to get to a start line of a race and not fear the process of running 100K, whereas some people want to get to 100K and they want to win the race. And so I think like it's very, it's very different for people. But I think like once you have that unconditional support and once you have those deep conversations with athletes, it's easier to put your finger on it and say, "Hey, I believe in you. I believe you can do this." And really setting that into stone.
0: So have you ever had a situation where someone sent you their? one three five ten year goals i know you guys usually go more three five and ten um and kind of like basically like ask them for a rewrite be like no you can do so much more than that come back for more like how do you go through the process of like basically showing somebody or trying to convince somebody that they're capable of doing something that they personally don't believe in the moment
1: yeah. So I think that gets back to the daily process. So when athletes send me that, and sometimes if I think they're undershooting themselves. I really have them set, I have them set, proce- I have them set goals that are related to the daily process. So it's like, you know, if they want to win the West- Western States 100 mile, it's like, let's try to get your 10K really fast this year and prove it to them and prove it to them and, and let them see the result of those daily goals and that daily progress. And I think once they see that, once they see the incremental gains in those little goals, I think it becomes a lot easier to, to believe the bigger goals that I'm helping them set.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that, that that makes sense. But at the same time, um, when you have these process goals, I'm just gonna speak to myself here. I it's so easy for me to have process goals which can then lead to all right, like those those in the in the moment, like am I am I doing what I need to do today? Um, and then you know, trying to basically having every day as a referendum on how things are going, generally speaking. So how do you try to make sure that people aren't, you know, taking these process goals and, you know, basically kind of, um, if things aren't necessarily stacking up the way they would like, you know, not, not dwelling on them or having some sort of negative feeling about themselves because maybe these process goals aren't either getting them to where they want to be in the short term or they feel like they're just struggling to meet them even if they are getting there.
1: Exactly. And that gets back to actually to the earlier part of the conversation that we had, where it's like, you're never defined by one single workout. You're never defined by one day. You know, we all have days where you wake up and it's like, today is going to be a rest day. Like, I cannot move my legs today. And, you know, my body would benefit from rest. And what I really encourage athletes is just to look at the trend in general, like life is a roller coaster. And like, we can't always be hitting our process based goals. And that's okay. You know, and you learn something from that and you grow from that. And just to look at the trend over time. And I think that the beautiful thing about Swap is that we really do work with athletes over a long, long period of time. And I think that once they believe that trend and once they believe that process, I think that's that's something that's helpful for them to see and helpful, helpful for them in terms of dreaming big.
0: Now, is there someone in mind that you feel like is a prime example of somebody who, you know? kind of underestimated their own potential and then ultimately achieved far more than they originally thought they could?
1: Yes. So I coached this athlete, Colleen McDonald. She's part of our Swap Minnesota crew. We've got this hardcore crew of athletes in Minnesota who brave the, the humidity in the summer and then the freezing cold temperatures in the winter. And I've coached her for about three years now. And she just recently won the Mines of Spain 100-mile race and totally crushed it. And I have watched her grow as a runner through that process. She actually had a few, a few rough starts at the 100 mile distance and then ultimately won the Mines of Sane coming back to it. And for her, it was like this this process where we would go through the training cycle and then then she would check in every few months in terms of like thinking about the long-term goals and thinking about goal setting. And it was, it was so great to go through that process with her and watch her just figure out what she was capable of during that process. And honestly, when she finished Minds in Spain, I got goosebumps because it was like I could see that three years ago and it was, it was so amazing to see the process of her believing that she could actually do it.
0: Now, when you say you could see it, this is the part that fascinates me. What were you able to see that you felt like, okay, if this person starts believing in themselves, they're capable of X, Y, Z?
1: Yeah. So she was tough as nails. Um, and I think that's often a great trait for predicting who is going to do well at 100-mile races. Because athletes who do well at 100-mile races are often tough as nails. They are able to respond to all the different variables that are thrown to them on race day. And they don't get bogged down by like crap that goes wrong. And she had all of those. Plus, she was talented. Um, and she had this great base of endurance and speed. And I think the combination of all of that made me just know instantly, I was like, she is going to be a champion.
0: Oh man, that that gave me goosebumps. That's for sure. Cause I thought you were going (laughs) to show me like, Hey, no, like she did, she did this race or, you know, she had this workout, but she didn't realize that she was like, had just run 80 miles the previous week and she killed it. and You know, she, she could do that on tired legs. Lord knows what she could do tapered or, or I don't even know what I was expecting, but that, that's a great, that's a great point about how, you know, basically talent can be described in a lot of ways. So what are some of the ways besides the obvious ones of like, Hey, someone's born with a 40 inch vertical leap. Like that's inherently genetic and can certainly be described as a, as a quote unquote talent. But what are some of the other, um characteristics or talents, excuse me, I'm like losing my voice. I have a chest cold. <laughs> oh, but <no. laughs> um, what are some other characteristics that you've seen um, from people that maybe aren't traditionally defined as talent, but that you certainly view in that light?
1: Yeah. So I view the ability to get back up again after failure as a big component in talent. Um, I think that just gives you, I also think that allows you to then access the more like genetic um, predictors of talent. And perhaps that even, you know what I mean? Like perhaps the ability to respond to failure is even something genetic, but I think it's something that we can all learn and improve on as well. Um, I think that's a big component. I think that having perspective and being able to have good self- um, a good self-reflection without being too hard on yourself is a talent. Again, I think these are all things that allow you to access what you've been given and allow you just to just keep showing up.
0: Now going into your work now and what, what's the I'm sorry, what's the name of the, the company that you that you're consulting with who does work with uh with DNA testing, connecting a potential like injury injury prediction?
1: Yeah, so I work for this company. We're called Action. Um, it stands for Actionable Genetics, and so we work with a number of elite and professional athletes, and then recreational athletes as well, to find um, genetic predictors of injury. And we've got um, we've got a number of genetic predictors of injury, and then also sports performance metrics like caffeine sensitivity and testosterone levels and vitamin B twelve.
0: Holy cow, that is so interesting. And when you, when you get into that sort of science, how much of that is hard and fast, and how much of it can can depend on? you know, genes expressing themselves in different environments or when they're subjected to different stimuli?
1: Yeah. So the way that we do it is, so we do something called a a genome-wide analysis. And so in that process, we look at basically a ton of different SNPs across the human genome. And we associate those SNPs with ICD codes, which are the way that injuries get coded in the hospital system. And then we're able to compare Um, The genetic predictors to the injuries. Um, And the interesting thing, though, is that we actually don't know what a lot of the SNPs do. And so all we can say is that we have that association and we're still looking to find essentially the rationale behind that. Um, and it's been interesting as I've worked with athletes who have come through the test. It's like, for example, we have a marker of shoulder instability. And many of those athletes who have had, had that genetic marker tell me, oh my gosh, like I have hyperlaxity in general across my joints. And so it's possible that we're picking up a genetic trait for hyperlaxity that is then feeding into the shoulder instability. So it's fun to be on this like cutting edge of research where we're still investigating all of the different markers that we that we have.
0: Oh, how interesting. So you're seeing the connections and then you basically have to like... Add color to the picture after the fact.
1: Exactly. And the color, the color we're still figuring out. It's like still kind of tie dye at this point, Um, you know, as we talk to athletes, as the science grows. um, And so it's fun to be in this field that is exploding as we speak. Um, And we actually, so we we use data from the UK Biobank and from Kaiser. And so those are populations with 100,000 patients, um, which is where all of these injury markers come from. And then we validate in, in smaller athletic sample sizes.
0: This is crazy. So I feel like you would be like the perfect person to like show people the best ways of like using and ignoring big data related to their own athletic and wellness performance.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I do the consultations for a number. I mean, I've talked to a number of professional athletes through action. And the interesting thing about it is framing it in such a way that they're not scared of their genetic results. Like my, my thing is, is like, this is powerful information to know, but you're not defined by it. Like, you know what I mean? Like genetics aren't your only risk factor for injury. And it's, it's actually empowering to know because you can make preventable actions. And so it's been interesting to be in that consultant role and to kind of like take that holistic viewpoint.
0: Right, can I mean, I've heard you talk about how, like, you kind of you like to dissuade athletes of yours from taking VO two tests
1: <laughs> yes, for, for yes. like the
0: same reason of like, hey, like, you know, it, it might not benefit you, but it could certainly harm your your your, your um, I guess how you you know, view your innate athleticism.
1: Yeah, well, for VO2 tests, I tell athletes it's like I want you to all believe that your VO2 max is 100 and to train accordingly. Um, You know what I mean? It's like I want I want them. I don't want them to feel constrained by a number. the The injury markers are nice because it's unlike VO2 testing. It's not like definitive. Um, You know, it's this is a part of your injury risk, and I think that as a result, it can help really help inform training without constraining training and that's that is my goal as a coach is never to constrain training or make athletes feel like they're defined by numbers or defined by data
0: now who is an athlete no matter the sport um but obviously you know given your background you know probably more running related who you feel like um has gotten the absolute most out of their genetic potential that you've seen like who has you know reached if 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 one hundred's the level, they absolutely reached one hundred. Like they, they they optimized their you know, every part of their life and were super efficient and, and all of these things and really got, you know, as close as they possibly could of their maximum potential.
1: Ooh. Well, I would say Tom Brady, but I'm not like huge (laughs) TV 13 fan. So I'm going to go with a more topical running example. Um, Des Linden. So Des is such a boss and I really respect her. She just works so hard and seems to also work smart in addition to that. Um, she's had a number of circumstances where she's taken like prolonged breaks from running just because either her body wasn't feeling it or she just felt like she needed that break. Um, and she's just, A person who shows up to the start line too. And I think she's got that talent that I was talking about before, where she's like, not afraid to put herself out there, not afraid to be who she is. And when you combine that with how like the level of hard work that she has, I think it creates a, an amazing and a like truly powerful athlete.
0: Yeah. And I should say we're recording this a day after the New York City Marathon, where she just had another unbelievable performance. Um, You know, one of many women who did just incredibly well in that race. All right. So before we get going, I have to ask, as someone who espouses the productivity of having high quality and audacious long term goals, what are some of the long term goals that you have up on your fridge?
1: Ooh. So after my hamstring rupture, I like cleared all running long-term goals. I was like, I don't want to think about this. I am just going to recover. I'm going to run on trails, but now that I am in the process of recovery, um my goal someday is to win Western States 100. That's like my big scary goal, but I would say that I want to focus on speed for a while. So, um I told David I was like, not until I'm like 38, 40 am I going to um venture into the Western States territory.
0: This is hysterical because I have heard you say, I have no quote unquote, I have no desire to run a, run a 100 mile race.
1: Yep, that well. So uh, David and I, we went to Western States this year and watched Claire Gallagher absolutely crush it. And so Claire Gallagher is one of my best friends. And she's a, a great training buddy of mine as well. And I think seeing that and just seeing the, the community support for Western States, and then also seeing Claire being able to continue running really fast 50 K's and like, progressing as an athlete, I think, I, I think it changed my mind.
0: How exciting. Megan, thank you so much for joining me today. You are just such a fascinating person on so many levels. I feel like I could interview every week just for, again, for my own selfish reasons to learn more of how you're doing all the things you're currently doing. Thank you so much and best of luck with all of your projects.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate this. This was so much fun. I can't even thank you enough for like synthesizing all my crazy data points and putting them together into one beautiful picture. So I am just so grateful for you and grateful for all the work that you put out there as well.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Megan, again for coming on the show. And thank you, listeners. For listening all the way through, I do apologize for the chest cold that I had. I was kind of losing my voice there near the end. Um, it was a, it was a miracle that I didn't have a coughing fit in the middle of this episode because I almost did so a couple times, but I was able to hold it back. Uh, but boy, this was so much fun. She is such a wealth of knowledge and we didn't even really dive into her running. Um, not because it's not interesting and I can't wait to talk to her about it. Maybe sometime in the future, but we just tried to focus on a couple other topics today that are certainly related to running, but aren't necessarily uh, related to her her personal running experience or any race recaps and things like that. So again, Megan, thank you so much for coming on this episode. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, or share the podcast. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and sharing it over Instagram seems to be the most preferred method. But anyway, you want to share the show I'd be greatly appreciative, um, that's for sure. But even if you don't, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you have a wonderful day, and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Foo, is produced by Symphonic Bang. <laughs>
1: Yeah, enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest of these days, this representation of storm brewing, I'm amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change, I'm trying to show this industry.